Tristan. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Went right along with Jason's passage today. Thank you, Jason, for reading the scriptures. It's good to be with you in the word of the Lord today. So we're going to do just what the church has been doing for a few thousand years now. We worshiped him in song. We worshiped him in giving and in prayer. And we'll worship him now in the reading of his word. So if you have little ones through grade four and you'd like them to be integrated service, children's church downstairs, you can dismiss them at this time to the, sanct uh, the sanctuary foyer. And if you'd like to keep them with you, feel free to do that. For the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's all right. We like uh, the sound of kids. Just follow the herd and uh, you'll get to the right location. We're going to continue and study through, verse by verse, through, as is our habit, through 1 Corinthians, the letter of Paul to the church, really the second letter of four. We have two preserved for us that we study. God's plan for a healthy church to study through these books. We've labeled this last chapter, which is really Paul's kind of wrap-up thoughts of this letter, income, itinerary, and instructions. And in particular, we're looking at uh, future planning and the work of God. As, as we can work our way through this passage, we can label it that way. Open your Bibles with me. Turn to the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians. John R. Rice is noted for saying, quote, God focuses on the details. If you comb out some hairs in the morning, the record of heaven is changed, end quote, because we understand that the Lord knows even the number of the hairs on our head. Claude Monet, responding to a question about uh, the greatness of his painting, said his focus as a painter, quote, I spare no pains whatever in the, in the minutest of trifles. Mark Twain commented on his focus in writing. He was noted as saying, quote, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between the lightning and the lightning bug, end quote. And I think that as we look at these last few verses in 1 Corinthians 16, it's easy, it's easy for us to overlook uh, maybe their intent. I think as we start reading about people that we don't know and places that we don't know and churches that don't uh, aren't in those places anymore. It's easy to just kind of fly through and read a few names and listen to Paul say a few things and maybe miss all the very important details that the Lord would have us come away with. So the, our, our focus then over the last two weeks has been uh, as we came out of the, uh, the income and what to do with uh, in New Testament giving, what to do with that is really to focus on the details of this itinerary that Paul has laid down. And uh, he's given them some details about his plans for the future. That was Paul's habit to let the church know what he had planned to do after that so they could pray for him, certainly so they could come on board and help him. And so we see that here. And we noticed last time we were together, as we began the study of, of the, this next to last section of chapter 16, that embedded in the details of his future plans are even more important details for us uh, of what it looks like to do the work of the Lord. Because we saw there uh, in verse 10, Paul says, Timothy, who does the work of the Lord as I also am. So if Paul says that qualifying statement about himself, then it would follow that as we look and see what Paul does, we then get a definition of what doing the ministry or doing the work of the Lord actually looks like. And as we noticed, doing the Lord's work is an underlying phrase that Paul describes, uh, that Paul uses to describe all of his ministry. Whether he was doing as we have seen the work of a priest, as uh, the work of a preacher, uh, or the work of a missionary and a trailblazer planting churches where Christ had not been named, or as we've seen in our immediate passage, his continued investment of people, uh, taking the time needed to invest in them over a long period of time, uh, helping others get invested as well, so helping them catch vision and, and find ministry, um, working hard and then leaving the outcome in the Lord's hands, uh, always watching for opportunities and open doors that the Lord's uh, given him, and even dealing with adversity and difficult people, he does the work of the Lord 
and that becomes that definition for us and defines for us and, and even gives an example of what that looks like. Everything he did, he did under the direction of what he understood to be the Lord's work. And, and these things become the example then of doing the Lord's work and what that looks like. And those principles encourage and govern any life as they apply themselves and into a pattern and a direction for any ministry. And we saw that the Lord's work uh, or labor among you as a comment uh, finds its way into much of what Paul says to other people as well. And we looked at a whole bunch of examples of that last time where Paul actually uses that, I did this work among you or work hard and all those kinds of things. He, he talks about the work of the Lord and what that looks like. His passion really was to run his race, as we saw in Timothy, and finish his course and be poured out like a drink offering. And even uh, among some that didn't care for him, he did that. And so because Paul modeled that for us, that knowledge is very significant then to the servant of Christ. If that's what that looks like to serve, then we can easily ask ourselves, am I running my race as I should? Am I finishing my course? All things that have to do with hard work and training and labor and then being poured out like a drink offering, holding nothing back, but investing yourself wholeheartedly over a long period of time. It's a wonderful place to be, to know with confidence that you're doing the Lord's work. So to model that, to see what it looks like in Paul, then to begin to model that in your own life becomes a very uh, wonderful place to be, a place where you can be at peace, uh, not worried about what you ought to be doing. Uh, Paul lived that way, not coming to the end of your life as Paul did in Acts 20. And, and, and then Paul had no regrets, see? And Paul said, listen, the whole time among you, I did this and I did this. And these are things I didn't hold back from you. And then he moves on from them and he has no regrets. He says, I, I, I poured myself out to you. I did what I was supposed to do. And that becomes a very great place to be. So these, these important details, uh, very significant for us as ministers of the gospel as we wait on the Lord's return. Now catch this. The results of functioning that way, doing the work of the Lord, is really the same thing as these other things we've studied. Now I want to just give you some parallels. Doing the work of the Lord, as Paul has described it, is really the same as carrying out God's revealed will for you. Remember we talked about that at length a number of months ago. What does it look like to walk in God's revealed will? Well, it looks like whatever he said, that's what you do. Uh, we always want to know what God's will is, but we really, in our, in our thoughts, we think, I want to know what the Lord's will is. That's his unrevealed plan for your life that he'll open up as you walk along. But we're never going to see that if we can't simply do whatever the work of the Lord is that he's described for us, his revealed will for us in the word. And so as you're, as you're doing the Lord's work, you're also carrying out his revealed will because he's being very clear about these things that Paul is supposed to do and what we're supposed to do, which we've seen. And that's also the same as walking in the spirit. Again, you know, what does that look like? What does the word of God say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? That's how we approach the word of God. It's not something out there that, oh, it'd be great to aspire to that. These are the Lord's words to the Lord's people, and God's people are best served by his word. Whatever the text says, that's what we do. And so as you spend time in the word each day and you assimilate those things, what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? That becomes the same thing as uh, walking in his revealed will. That becomes the same thing as walking in the spirit. That's the, really the same thing as functioning in the work of the Lord. These all, all these things are parallel. They, they work off the same source. What does the word say? And so that becomes a very satisfying place. And that, uh, you know, to lead you, he's going to continue to lead you, carry out uh, his will for your future. And that brings about usefulness for you. It brings about uh, success in the work, perhaps not in the world's eyes, but certainly in the Lord's eyes. It means bringing about fulfillment, a satisfaction in the sum of life. And maybe you're, you're walking, you've walked in the Lord for a while. Maybe you've known the Lord for a while. You've got real, no real satisfaction. I'd like you to look around you in, in your life and see, you know, what are the things the Lord's revealed to you to do? Where does his revealed will for you in the word? 
What parts of the ministry of the word and inside the Lord's work are you not doing? Add those to your life. You'll find uh, a very uh, satisfactory, very uh, much success, much usefulness there. Paul says to the Ephesians church uh, in Ephesians 4.15, again, a parallel passage for us, uh, to walk in uh, the, the Lord's work, to carry out his revealed will, to walk in the spirit. The same thing is to grow up in all aspects unto him. It's not, it's not some mysterious place where you've finally grown up. It's a place where you understand what the Word of God says, and you just begin to do it. As it reigns in the, the personal areas of your life and, and, and your tendency to sin in some area, and as it encourages you to use your spiritual gifts to invest in other people, whatever that is, that is growing up in all aspects unto Him. So these are very interconnected. And even these small areas where we see Paul, 1 Corinthians 16, where he's given us some clues about what the work of the Lord looks like, it's part of this much bigger picture of walking in the Spirit, it's a much bigger picture of, of carrying out his revealed will, of growing up in all aspects into him. Who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. So once everybody gets to that point, or the majority of the people get to that point, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. But if we can't even obey the very simple commands, beloved, of what not to do and what to do, and we're not sensitive enough to say, okay, that part of my life has to stop, then there's no possible way we're ever going to get to the point where we grow up into all aspects unto him. You got it? And it doesn't matter how long you've been saved, okay? Because maturity is not connected to how long you say you've been saved any more than it's connected to whether you hold a position in the church or whether you teach a Sunday school class or however many meetings you went to or some cool sermon you listened to, you know, six months ago or two years ago, okay? Maturity is, what does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And putting it into action. And then all these things then connect to each other, see? The very important parts of the Word of God as it, as it directs our own, our own interaction with His kingdom and what we do with what we've been given. A lot of that topic I'm kind of summing up today. We're going to look at more in depth. Now, in our study, we've made it through the majority of the section we marked as itinerary. So I'd like you to look, if you would, to verse 5. Paul is focused on the church, he's doing the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5, 16, 5 through 12. That's the section that we understand to be uh, that itinerary section where we've pulled out so many uh, wonderful uh, principles. Look at verse 5. We'll read through um, just verse 7 right now and just make some comments. Paul says this, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. Verse 6, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. Verse 7, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. Pause right there. There's Paul's continued investment in people. We saw as a principle that, it, that ministry is a continued long-term investment. Taking the time that's needed to put in what's needed to be put in, okay? It's not just a quick, uh, you know, uh, sprint and you're done. It's a marathon, a long-term investment, even in difficult times, whatever it takes. Helping others get invested is not only just doing the ministry, but the 2 Timothy 2.2, you know, things that you've heard from me, Paul says, find faithful men and teach them. Uh, so they can teach others also. So this is investment in people, getting people on board uh, to doing what uh, they need to be done, they need to be doing, working hard, and then leaving the outcome of the Lord's hands. That's what he says, if the Lord permits. Listen, I'm going to do all these things, but if the, Lord, if the Lord permits it, and maybe he won't, but this is the place where I'm going to go, and these are the things I'm going to do, and I just trust the Lord to carry out whatever his plan is. The next portion we looked at last time, look at verse 8, if you would. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Verse 9, for a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many... Adversaries. Pause right there. So Paul, again, as we look at principles of what it looks like to do the work of the Lord, 
Uh, Paul is always looking or praying for a door of service to be open. It's a common expression for him. We see it all through the New Testament. We looked at that last time. So God opens a door of ministry to them, and, and that becomes a principal example for us for doing the work of the Lord, always watching for opportunity to be plugged in. God is still in the business of opening up opportunities for doing his work. He still does that now. As we said before, if there's a need in the church, it's a very simple equation, beloved. If there's a need in the church and it will fulfill the purposes of God as he's laid them out for us and you can fill that need, then that is not a hard question, okay? That's a very simple answer. Yes, you should be plugged in. And before we leave this verse, opened is in the perfect tense. So it's not, as we saw before, where Paul's praying for an open door or he's looking for an opportunity. Paul says there's already an open door. It's standing open. So I realize that this is an opportunity for ministry, and I'm just going to walk right on in here, and it's going to interrupt the plans I thought I had to come with Timothy and give this letter to you and go to, Mas uh, go to Macedonia and all these places. I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that right now because this door is open, and I'm going to walk through it. And, beloved, many of you can see open doors in ministry where you can plug in. Listen, I would encourage you, that door's standing open, and you can meet that need, and it fulfills the purposes the Lord has for the church and for his kingdom, then that is not a hard question to answer. Just plug yourself in. And then he says this, kind of an incongruous part we saw last time, verse 9, and there are many adversaries. So there's a wide open door, and there's a lot of trouble there. And, you know, typically we would look at the wide open door and see a lot of trouble, and what would we do? Uh, no thanks. That looks like a lot of, that looks like a hard, lot of hardship. And this is no surprise for Paul, and certainly no change from the norm for him. Certainly, principle number six remains unchanged throughout the ages, though. Expect adversity and difficulty when you do the work of the Lord. I don't think you can really see any place in the scripture where you don't find that example. And I think it would be safe to say that a believer is rarely allowed to pursue the work of, God, of Christ unimpeded. And Paul is our example, if he's our example in anything, it's in this, okay? And we can certainly see the truth of that statement. And, and we looked last time at Paul's experience in Ephesus, uh, recounted for us early in uh, 2 Corinthians, which we're going to be able to see again uh, shortly. And certainly as we see that in, in, um, in Acts chapter 19. So in the midst of in the midst of all that, in the midst of all the difficulty, the gospel went out. He was teaching, he was discipling, he was doing the work, even in the midst of hard, hard times where he despaired even of his own life. He was burdened excessively. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1 8 says he despaired of life. Uh, he thought they could be killed at any minute uh, as, he was doing, as he was doing that work. And I don't think any people in the Western Hemisphere, certainly uh, in the modern church, would even have anything remotely related to uh, being in, in worry of your own life. Okay, but we, we're willing to bail as soon as any little bit of difficulty uh, pops up. And I would just say that that seems to be contra contrary terms to how the scripture would describe uh, faithfully doing ministry. And so it's not unusual then. And this is the norm, if you will, if you're doing the work of the Lord. Later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, and I'm using this as an example because, of course, Paul uh, gives further instruction and further comment on things that are going on in this letter so it shouldn't surprise us that we'd see this again. We won't deal with it extensively because we will get to it and, and take time with it. But he says this, as, as he is having to defend himself again with this church. He's been here three times. Again, he's defending himself because they're constantly criticizing him. And, and he's defending his leadership to them. And he says to those who continually criticize him, he says, uh, regardless of what you might think, I'm in far more labors, uh, far more imprisonments, beaten time without number. I can't even remember the times I took a beating for the word. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, as opposed to being beaten with lashes. So he's differentiating between the beatings. Um, I was once stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, 
Sounds a little bit like the ministry we heard last week, doesn't it? Up in the Guatemalan mountains, you know, danger from rivers and danger from roads and dangers from robbers. That's, some people have to do, have to put up with that. Dangers from my countrymen, so even the Jews, of course, caused a lot of hardship. Dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, so those who claim to be Christians but really aren't. Uh, verse 27, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such things, uh, apart from all of that, which is enough, he says, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So everyone that he planted, all the ones he was invested in, he continued to be invested in, and that weighed on his mind, along with all the difficulty he had to put up with in the doing of the ministry. And then he says this, he gives an example, who is weak without my being weak? So in other words, when he sees somebody having a hard time walking in the faith, and somebody who's struggling to have a good testimony, who's weak without Paul also struggling along with him and saying, oh man, I hope they make that through. Uh, you know, I need to speak a word of encouragement, to speak an admonition, or whatever it is, see? Who's weak without me being weak? Who's led into sin with my intense concern? Paul says, listen, it doesn't matter wherever the churches are. If they're led into sin, I'm concerned. And I'm going to speak and I'm going to do the things I need to do. So all these things, very important, see. So not only was uh, the labor and toil and striving and persecutions difficult, you know, he had constant concern for those in the church. The weakness of people affected him. When people were in sin, it concerned him. And so, you know, it's not unusual for Paul to have difficulty. And there's a lot of difficulty. See, and that's what happens, beloved, catch this, when you're invested long-term on a life basis, there will be that continued concern for people, see, over the long haul. Not just trying to quick fix everything and just move on, but you're invested over a life, uh, on a life basis. You've known people for a while. You understand their patterns. They understand you. you. You can invest in them. You recognize when things are going awry with them. You've been there long enough to understand that, see. If you're invested on a long-term life basis, there's going to be trouble. You can just guarantee that, see. There's going to be difficulty. Now catch this. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 takes in a sampling of all the trouble he had to deal with. But here... Now catch this, here in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul and Timothy, certainly in Corinth, are dealing with church people, okay? Now, not all of these that we saw in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29 are church people, okay? Some of them are robbers, and some of them are, uh, are false brethren, and some of them are the Jews and whatever. These are, these are church people, okay? So look at verse 10, 1 Corinthians 16. Now, he says, if Timothy comes, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you, catch this, without cause to be afraid. So it just seems hard to believe that he'd have to actually say that, right, to the church? Doesn't that, does that just fly over your head? See that he can come and he's not afraid. He's going to the church. Why should he be afraid? He's coming to Corinth bearing a letter from Paul, and Paul actually has to write in the letter, make sure he's able to be with you without so much opposition that it causes him to despair. Is that the saddest thing you've ever read? But that's not the saddest. Wait, we, we have a few other ones. Make sure he can do what he's supposed to do. Look at the rest of verse 10. For he's doing the work of the Lord's work as I also am. In other words, whatever you may think you know about him, understand this. He's doing the work of the Lord. Don't forget who he's serving. Don't forget what he's doing. And let him do it. And just as a footnote, you know, think about Timothy and Paul. Compare them a little bit, beloved. Timothy was less bold than Paul. Okay, so Timothy would be on the meek side, maybe not able to really determine what he wanted to do. So he'd be way over on that scale. You know, well, maybe we should do this, maybe we shouldn't. And if you read First and Second Timothy, you recognize Paul's giving them some definitive answers. Deal with this people like this, and make sure you say this to these people, make sure you and don't let anybody despise you, exhort, reprove, correct, and let, let nobody despise your youth, and don't, nobody disregard you. He has to encourage Timothy to be more bold, okay? Probably less inclined to speak up. 
I think we can see that certainly if you want to reference 1 Timothy 4.12, right around that area. I think you can see Paul trying to encourage Timothy not to be so meek. He was younger than Paul, of course, a different character type than Paul, probably a, little, a lot less assertive, and Paul was probably a lot more assertive. So Paul be on the other side of the scale. So you have a lot less assertive one with Timothy, a lot more assertive one with Paul, both of them doing the work of the Lord. So Paul has to say to them, hey, you know, don't give Timothy a hard time. Let nobody despise him, exotheneo, esteem him least. Let no one value him little, okay? And who's Paul speaking, he's speaking to? Well, obviously he's going to have to speak to the spiritually mature in Corinth because the immature ones, what are they going to do? They're going to belittle Timothy. They're going to make him uh, have a difficult time. They're going to cause him to be uh, uneasy, right? So Paul calls out to the spiritual ones, whoever they are at 1 Corinthians, and just says, hey, make sure he can, nobody despises him. Step up and say, all right, that's enough. Don't let anybody talk down about him, you who are spiritual, because the unspiritual ones aren't listening, are they? So Paul's dealing with this amongst the churches. And beloved, let me tell you, not a lot has changed in 2,000 years, okay? I know a lot of my, a lot of my friends and a lot of uh, relatives who are serving in ministry, they deal with this on a daily basis. They don't have peace. They're made to be afraid. Listen, many of you know I'm getting my doctorate, and I deal with a lot of students across the country who are also getting their doctorates on discussion boards. Listen, this is not unusual to be in a church, a caustic church environment where the church people are constantly giving you a hard time. So listen, this is just as applicable now as it was 2,000 years ago in Corinth. Church people haven't changed. And of course, it finds its fuel in gossiping and backbiting and rumor-mongering and unkindness. And it's all couched in the most spiritual language, of course, amongst those who call themselves believers. You get it? We saw John 15 last week. In Jesus' name, Paul says here, you know, in many other places, don't do it, okay? This is not how the church is supposed to function. And Timothy shouldn't have to uh, be in the church and not have peace. Timothy shouldn't have, I shouldn't have to tell you to let him dwell with you and let nobody despise him. Send him on his way, verse 11, in peace. Give him a break. See. He's bringing you a letter, perhaps collecting an offering. He's doing the Lord's work, whether you recognize it or not. Get on board with what he's doing. Equip him to do it. Equip him to do what he's called to do. See, get invested in him. And that in peace is the noun irene. You know, that's, the, that's, the, that's going to be the state of every believer in glorified body. That's, that's also used to refer to that state. Let him be in peace. Exempt him, in other words, from the havoc of your disunity, if you just want to kind of couch it in a phrase. Kind of exempt him from that, okay? Let him, you know, insulate him from your backbiting and your unkindness, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 4. Lay off judging him before the time. You may not know everything you think you know about him, see? Let him do his ministry in restfulness and harmony. The reproof and the command here should still echo in the modern church today. There's still a lot of this going on, and it shouldn't be. And then Paul says this. Look at, look at um, this next passage. So that he may come to me, for I expect him, you see where I am? With the brethren, verse 11. Again, Paul had plans, see? Acts 19.22 mentions that Erastus is probably with Timothy, although uh, Paul doesn't mention it here. So, uh, but I've really waited to classify this statement as a principle until we see the next uh, verse. Look at verse 12. So you read the last part of verse 11. Together, I think we see a great principle here. So look at it. So that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. First part of verse 12, but concerning Apollos, our brother. So now we've got Timothy certainly 
referred to. We've got Erastus referred to, but not mentioned by name because he's there. Acts said he is. And then there's some other people we're going to bring up here in just a minute. So the brethren, of course, are going to include some other people, probably Stephanus and some others. And then he says Apollos. And, and before we comment about Apollos, I, could think we, I think we could see a really important principle, number seven. Here it is. The work of the Lord requires some team playing. There's going to be some people coming on board. There's going to be more than just Paul. Paul, Paul was very much about that, see. He was a team player. Men like Timothy and Apollos, who displayed the gifting of a pastor elder, they were all brought right into the middle. So you recognize men who are like that? That's what that's supposed to look like, okay? And in your ministry circle, when you recognize people who have that passion and that gifting, you know, you want to get them invested. This is part of getting them invested. Hey, this is a great ministry for you, okay? All three of them were laboring together. You know, Paul wasn't in some certain position above them. You don't see any of that there. In fact, you're going to see the opposite here in just a minute. But Paul recognized this. Listen, he's got Apollos there. He's got Erastus. He's got Timothy. And there's some others. And the brethren probably referring to surrounding churches, certainly Stephanus from verse 15, possibly Fortunatus, Acacius from verse 17. Those guys are all included. They're all leaders in their churches. And they're all included in this, the brethren, see? So all apparently church leaders. We'll talk about them further later because we're going to see some more names. But Paul understood the importance of surrounding himself with qualified men and having them work alongside him. And Paul looked for others and, uh, with the pastor elder gifting like Timothy, because now we're talking about Paul, okay, and Titus and Apollos and Stephanus and Aquila. And in your ministry, you look for others with similar passions, with similar gifting, and you want to get them involved, see? That's what that looks like. If each person is doing that from, on a microcosm level to the corporate level to the worldwide level, see, that begins to begin, let the church function like it's supposed to. Now look at verse 12. Let's look at the whole section uh, in its entirety. And I'm just kind of picking out things I think that as we just see general statements, we recognize, hey, Paul is talking to a lot of godly men here, guys who have the gifting of pastor-teacher. And he's saying, listen, I expect him to come back with a brother, and they're going to do a bunch of stuff, and they're all together with us. We're doing this. But he says, verse 12, but concerning Apollos, but concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. And now, this passage, just the last time in this, in this chapter, and in this, in this letter, where we see the first two words, but concerning. And do you remember where that comes from? Remember back in, verse, or in chapter 7, when Paul received a letter, and then he goes through from chapter 7 all the way through chapter 16, from time to time, says, but concerning. So in other words, he's drawing back to their mind, he's saying, I know you asked this question, okay, now I'll address it. Okay, when he got to chapter 7, he got this letter and he says, but concerning those who are single and concerning those who are married. And later he goes, but concerning, um, uh, but, but concerning the, the gift of the offering. Remember here in the first of chapter 16. And he talks about, but concerning uh, taking communion. And, and he's, you know, they had questions, but concerning spiritual gifts. Remember that? But concerning spiritual gifts. You know, how do you know for sure somebody's spiritual? Just because they stand up and speak in tongues? No. Uh, there's some things that you need to understand about that. So, a lot of stuff going on here. Paul's answering questions from a letter. This is one of them. But concerning Apollos, our brother. So there appears to be this last occurrence of this combination, which we have said uh, comes from 1 Corinthians 7. Now, obviously, the Corinthian church appears to be interested in Apollos' return to the church. And judging from Paul's opening comments in this chapter, uh, in chapter 1, verse 12, the church was divided over their favorite minister. Remember this? This is the first thing Paul had to talk to them about as we talk about a healthy church. 1 Corinthians 1, 11, after it gets through recounting for them what it looks like to be a saint and the blessing it is to be a saint, the very first thing he talks about has to do with this, this type of discussion that's going on in the church. And what does Paul say? 
He says, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people. So a prominent woman in the church is bringing this to Paul's attention as Paul is gone. He says, listen, there's a whole bunch of division going on, and here's what they're saying. There are quarrels among you. Verse 12, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I of Christ. Verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul's not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So let's pause right there. So, at best, it's unclear why they want Apollos to come back, okay? So this was the attitude in the church. Paul came, planted the church, stayed for 18 months, immediately followed up by Apollos. And we're going to look at that passage in just a minute. And then Paul's, Apollos is now gone, and now they're writing Paul a letter, and they're saying, hey, um, could you send Apollos back here? So it's unclear uh, why they want him to come back. The reality is, beloved, and I think you can see it as well as I can, that it's likely it had to do with their immaturity and their factious nature. Okay, so we had Paul, and we had Apollos, we had the arguments, now let's make Apollos back. We like him. So the letter has asked Paul about Apollos. They wanted him to come back. So Paul says to them, I encouraged him greatly to come with the brethren. In other words, I wanted him to go when Timothy and Erastus came. Okay? I would have preferred he'd be in that group as they carried the letter. And I was, of course, Paul says, I was planning on going to that, uh, that meeting as well. But I wasn't able to because there's a wide open door for ministry here and many adversaries. And I'm, I've got my hands full. So I wanted, though, Apollos to go with the brethren. Paul strongly encouraged him to go. Uh, Paul is a problem confronter. I think you can see that. He wants to take care of the issues here in the church when there are issues. And Apollos is a wonderful guy. And there don't appear to be any problems between Paul and Apollos, of course. Uh, just as a reference point on Apollos from Acts 18, as you know, look, and you can flip there if you'd like. Hold your finger here. Acts 18. Paul comes from Athens. Uh, he meets uh, believers in Corinth. He meets Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. He works with them there and begins to plant a church. He starts in the synagogue, and then some people get mad at him, so he moves into the house next door to the synagogue and continues the ministry that's going on. And so he travels to Ephesus after he's done with that ministry with Aquila and Priscilla, and he leaves them there. And the Ephesians want Paul to stay, but he doesn't want to stay. And he tells them, you know, if the Lord wills, I'll come back. And he goes to Caesarea, and then he goes to Antioch, and he goes to Galatia, and then to Phrygia. And later in Acts 19, he comes back to them. So they asked him to stay in Ephesus after he left Corinth, and, and he left Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, and finally in Acts 19, he comes back around, and he says, I have a wide open door with lots of adversity, I'm going to be here, and I'm going to stay here. And that's what we've been talking about. Now, in the meantime, Acts 18.24 starts out by saying this. Now look at this passage. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. So Paul's in Ephesus, or I'm sorry, Paul's not in Ephesus, he's left, he's going to come back. Aquila and Priscilla are in Ephesus, and they recognize he's mighty in the scriptures. So this is, the, this is a guy who could speak, okay? And he knows what the Old Testament says. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. Okay, now there's a problem. And Aquila and Priscilla have been discipled by Paul, and they hear that there's a lacking in uh, doctrine and theology. So they begin to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila hear him, they took him aside, explained to him the way of God more accurately, and when he wanted to go across to Achaia, which is Corinth, okay, anytime you read that, realize that that's Corinth, okay, he wants to go over to, to Corinth, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him, and when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public and demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So, now you kind of got the backstory of Apollos. He is in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla hear him speak, he's really powerful, but he doesn't have all of his theology straight, so they straighten him all out. He has this burden to go to Corinth, Paul's already left Corinth, they've got an absence of pastor, he comes 
plugs himself in there, the, the brethren love him there, and so he stays there for, for a period of time. So he's a powerful speaker. Now remember, Paul is accused of not being too interesting a speaker or a person, for that matter. In fact, that's exactly what they say about Paul. They don't really like how he speaks, and he's kind of unimpressive, and you know, it's abominable how, you know, how he puts his words together. And Actually, the church wrote these words about him. Catch this, 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. That's really nice. For they say... Uh, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Nice. That's church people. It's great. That's what they say about Paul. So Apollos, he's a, he's a mighty speaker. He's really, really good. He's an orator, and people really enjoy listening to him. And he didn't have his theology straight, and Aquila Priscilla, they straightened him out because Paul had discipled them. And so they want him to come back. So. All he knew of salvation was from the Old Testament, the baptism of John, so they fixed that. A&P, get him up to speed. Call him Priscilla. And, you know, so now he's a completed Jew, and he wants to go over to Corinth, and, and he wants to water, because Paul had planted. Okay, remember, that's what Paul did. He went where Christ wasn't named, and he planted. And Apollos just comes over, and he's going to water there, okay? And sometime later, he leaves the church. And that brings us to our current passage, where Paul is addressing the issue of the church, wanting Apollos to come back. And I'm sure Apollos was just chomping at the bit to be back there, right? Because it's such a pleasant ministry for everybody. Listen, beloved, if, <laughs> if on the one hand the church is like, you're a great speaker, and we don't like Paul or Peter either. Okay, listen, they talk about you when you're not there, all right? They might say good things to your face when you're not there. They're going to talk about Because that's an attitude problem, not a leadership problem, see? And so I'm sure Apollos is just chaming. I mean, let me go back. Let me go back. I mean, he left there already. So he says this, verse 12, But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come with you, to come to you with the brother. And I really wanted him to go. I tried my best, Paul says, to convince him to go with you. And Paul, Paul's warmth, you know, he says, Our brother Apollos shows, you know, there's no unfriendliness between he and Apollos. Okay, we know uh, what some of the people of Corinth are like. Paul hadn't tried to keep Apollos away. In fact, he probably wanted Apollos to, there to help. Go on back, Apollos, and straighten us out. See if they'll listen to you. But Apollos didn't jump at any chance of getting to Corinth, not at any time soon, because he says this, and it was not at all his desire. Not at all his desire. Not just, he didn't want to right now, but very emphatic. Not at all his desire to come to you. And we can only speculate on why he didn't want to go back just yet, but the whole interaction, I think, just lends itself to principle number eight. You know, you have to be patient with the people you're ministering with. And I'm talking about Paul and Apollos. So here's Paul, okay? unarguably the top dog, right? I mean, he planted the church. He's responsible for the discipling of Aquila and Priscilla, who discipled Apollos. I mean, unarguably, Paul is, the, he's the head honcho. I mean, if we think about Paul, that's what we think, right? He's the top of all the elders. If you think about all that in the New Testament, he's the top. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He discipled Aquila and Priscilla, who discipled Apollos. He could have forced the issue, just said, Apollos, you need to go. But he didn't. Why? Because Apollos was part of that circle of pastor, teacher, and, and the Holy Spirit was working in them, and he was patient. And I mean, think about Apollo. You know, Paul is greatly encouraging him to go back to Corinth. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? I mean, imagine the conversation with Apollos and Paul. He's coming up and saying, hey, I really think you need to go. This is coming from Paul, okay? I really think you need to go back there. And what is Apollos very comfortable saying, it's not at all my desire to go back there right now. Maybe Apollos' hands were full. Maybe he just he didn't have the stomach for it at this point, and maybe he just needed to wait and be strengthened somewhere else before he went back. But that's a lot of pressure. You know, when Paul wrote the letter to Philemon, remember this, 
And he's talking about a slave that had run away and come to faith, and they're going to come back. And, and uh, I've taught you this letter, but it was many, many years ago. Therefore, Philemon 8 9 says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. So what's Paul say uh, here? He says, you know what? I could tell you what to do, and I have the authority to do that. But for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul says, listen, I could tell you what to do and tell you to go and make sure this happens, okay? Take this force back, and, and I want you to restore him, but not as a slave, but as an equal. He, Paul said, I could do this to you, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to encourage you. Much the same language as we saw, I, I strongly encourage Apollos to go back. Paul said, uh, no, um, I don't, I'm not ready to do that. 2 Corinthians 10.8, again, Paul speaks of his authority, says this. He says this, for even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I'll not be put to shame. In other words, our authority, that's he, Timothy, Apollos, those who serve as pastor, teacher, the authority that goes on there. That's why he says, obey those who are in authority over you. Listen, there's an authority principle that goes along with that, okay? Paul says, listen, even though I have that authority and I have to tell you that I have that authority, even if I have to say I have the right to direct these issues, I'm not going to apologize for that. I, I have the right to tell you what to do, and I'm not going to apologize because I have the right to tell you what to do, Paul says. And so Paul had the authority to say to Apollos, you need to go. So I need to pack up, go with Timothy, go with Erastus, I need to show up there and straighten them out. But instead, because there was this, there was this uh, wonderful relationship between these other pastor teachers, he's like, okay, the Holy Spirit's not leading you to go back now. Okay, I get that, so we'll, we'll go with that. Apollos obviously knew Paul had the authority to tell him, but Paul was sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading of Apollos and really deferred to him and then relayed Apollos' answer to them at the end of verse 12. So here it is. Uh, concerning Apollos, and you want him to come back, it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. So Paul's a team player. Paul listened to the Holy Spirit's prompting in his peers, and that's a great thing uh, that's included in doing the work of the Lord. He's listening to that Holy Spirit prompting amongst the peers in your ministry. Paul was aware uh, he needed other elders to work with him, listening to the other elders talk to him. They both, they all had the, the bigger view of the church in mind. They all committed themselves to the ministry of the gospel, all been ordained and, and hands put on them. They had, they showed forth the, the, uh, uh, the gifts of an elder and he's listening to what that person says, okay? He needed others to work with him. It's, uh, it was always about that 2 Timothy 2.2 work. Now, that closes out the itinerary portion of our look at this section. As you go verse by verse, you end up moving into another sections. And, and with that itinerary, really a wonderful list, really, of eight principles that we can find in the life of someone doing the work of the Lord. In particular, Paul. So it has great, app great application to those who, who minister to the church, who serve in the position of pastor and teacher and elder. But I think a general principle for all, and the thing about it is, you know, as you work through these principles, here's the deal. You may not get famous following them. Uh, you, you, uh, no one may be around to notice that you do them. In fact, when you do them, you may get criticized for doing them. And when you're long-term, people may wish you were not, okay? This, this is how that works, you understand? And even if they do notice, they may criticize you and ridicule you and create some adversity because you're doing them. So no guarantee of immediate success in the eyes of men, okay? Only guaranteed success in the eyes of the Lord as you will, willingly submit yourself and say, okay, I'm going to do that. And Paul certainly understood that. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he started this whole section with this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, what's he say? Be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the, what is it? Right? Be steadfast, be immovable. Sounds a lot like what he just got through saying in chapter 16, did it not? How he modeled that. Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It may be in vain in the eyes of men, but not in the Lord. Okay? Nobody's going to get to the end of their life who ministered in this way and say, wow, what a waste of time. Man, I poured in 35 years of doing this, and that was a complete waste of an investment. No one who ministers in this way will ever say that. Because the work's not in vain in the Lord. Revelation twenty two twelve 12 is my, one of my favorite verses. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. Guess what? Your labor's not in vain, and someday the Lord is going to come, and the reward is going to be with him, and he's going to give to every man according to what he's done. What kind of criteria do you think he's going to use to evaluate what's been done? Do you think it will be what a few in the church said or, you know, what some, some people who all they could do is criticize could say or some people who just sow discord all the time, what they said, or some people who had just, you know, just a nasty disposition and what they said. Do you think it'll have anything to do with any of that? No, because Paul dealt with that constantly. Was he worried about all about it? Well, he was a little worried that he was going to lose his life a few times, but then he just trusted that the Lord could raise me from the dead, so I really wasn't that concerned right? I, I couldn't even think about it anymore. Hey, the Lord can raise the dead, so if I get killed and he wants to raise me up, he can. And if I'm not here anymore, then I'm going to be present with the Lord, and that's far better, and I'd prefer that anyway, right? So what criteria do you think is going to be used? Well, it'll be the criteria of what it looks like to function in the work of the Lord as Paul's modeled it. It'll be the criteria of what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. It'll be a criteria of what it looks like to be built up in everything unto Christ, who is the head, see? That's what it's going to look like. And then Christ is going to come, and his reward is with him, and he's going to render it every man according to what he's done. And if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we recognize there's the Bema Seat judgment, and there's this foundation of Christ that was laid, and then you've got this time to build on that foundation. And some of that building was wood, hay, and stubble, and some was gold, silver, and costly stone. And then the fire will come, and it burns that whole foundation, and everything that's Gold, silver, and costly stone all still stands. And whatever wings you threw on that were wood, hay, and stubble, and all parts of your attitude and your character or whatever that, that interfered with the work of Christ and the work of the kingdom, that all gets burned up, and you just get to keep that part that you built on the foundation of Christ that was gold, silver, and costly stone. And guess what that will be? That'll be doing the work of the Lord as Christ has commanded it. It'll be uh, fully built up unto Christ. It'll be uh, controlled by the Spirit. Everything you did, controlled by the Spirit. All your motivations of why you did what you did, see? All of that's under evaluation. That's the criteria. Not what other people said about it, not the, not the criticism, not the, you know, none of that, okay? They don't get to speak during that evaluation. Your labor for the Lord is not in vain. The master judges correctly. He knows what the work of the Lord really is, see? What the work he gave us to do really looks like. It's got, it's got really cloudy for some. Spiritual gift of criticism. You think that's one of the ones that's listed. And he's going to reward that accordingly. I think Matthew 25, 14 really illustrates it as well as any place in the scriptures. And we're going to close with this. 
Now, you can turn here if you'd like. You can listen to me read it, whatever you'd like to do. <clears throat> Matthew 25, 14. Jesus is teaching. He says this, For it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Verse 16, immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. Verse 17, in the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. Verse 18, but he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Verse 20. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted me five talents. See, I have gained five more talents. Verse 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22. And also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Verse 26, but his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then, if you knew that, you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10. Verse 29, for to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw thou the worthless slave into outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master is Jesus. The slaves are those who would call themselves believers. Pretty simple, right? The talents are differing levels of responsibility. And faithfulness is what's required. And the reward is based on faithfulness, not results. How can you see that? Well, one was given five, one was given two, both given the exact same reward. Well done. We understand what our responsibilities are, beloved. I don't think you can come away from this series, and certainly the ones we've talked about before, and, and a lot of your background, you would know that as well. I don't think you can go through the series and not know what your responsibilities are and what they're supposed to look like and what they aren't supposed to look like. And Paul models for us what that discharge of those responsibilities look like. That's why this section is so valuable to us. And reminds us over and over, he says, let us not lose heart in doing good for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Reminded of a great missionary, Henry Morrison, who served the Lord in Africa for over 40 years. On the way back to the United States, he, he began to wonder, would anybody remember us? 
back in that day, of course, um, he was traveling on a ship with Teddy Roosevelt, president of the U.S., also on board. He'd gone to Africa for a hunting trip. They were both coming back on the same ship, and when the ship pulled into New York Harbor, he looked to see if anyone had come to welcome him back home. Thousands of people were there cheering. Bands were playing. There were signs and banners and billboards everywhere, welcome home. Henry and his wife were really excited about the crowds of people that were there to welcome them home, and when they went to get off, they realized that the people were already gone. They'd come to welcome Teddy Roosevelt home. Henry Morrison went on to his hotel with a very heavy heart, and as he sat there on his bed, he asked his wife, he said, Honey, I just don't get it. For 40 years, we poured out our lives into ministry and service, and yet we come back to America, and not a single soul welcomes us home. His wife came and sat down next to him on the bed, and she put his hand on his shoulder, and she comforted him with the words that he would never forget. Henry, you've forgotten something. You aren't home yet. And I think if we can think of anything that can remind us that there may be some very thankless days in ministry and very difficult days is to be reminded that that is the norm for the New Testament and that the appreciation of people is not the judge of whether or not you're doing what you're supposed to do, okay? Luke 46 says this, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way they spoke of your fathers, the false prophets. He said, just do the work. Just charge it in such a way that it models what you see in Paul's life and the other New Testament uh, passages, okay? Just be faithful, long-term investment in people, even in difficult circumstances. If there's a door standing open, walk through it if you can meet that need. If there's no door, pray for a door to be open like Paul did, and then find a place to plug in and do it faithfully over the long term. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And remember that you're not home yet, and so the reward is not here yet. Christ is going to bring it. And he's going to reward each man according to what he has done. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for its power to cut through all the dross and all the foolishness and baggage that perhaps has accumulated itself in our lives. I pray that you will do your work by your Holy Spirit, even in areas where perhaps we didn't make a point or an illustration, because you're like that. Your word is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword dividing the soul and spirit and joint and marrow and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so, Father, you are at work with your word, always. And so I pray that you'll do that work and be free to do it and help us not to resist your efforts in the sanctification of your word. Father, thank you for the reminder that we're not home yet. Thank you for the reminder that difficult days are certainly part of ministry and that there's certainly great joy. Paul never lacked in joy, even in... Uh, uh, recounting for us the difficult times he had, he still said your grace was sufficient for him, for your strength was made perfect in weakness, and therefore I'd rather be weak and glorify you, Lord. He, he understood um, that he could abound or abase, and it didn't matter because you had provided all he needed. And he could have joy regardless of circumstance. And Lord, help us to have that. Uh, help us certainly to, to bear forth that fruit and the fruit of peace and love and gentleness, and goodness, and faith, and meekness, and self-control. Thank you for the reminder that we have constantly of, of what we're supposed to be doing. Thank you for the future encounter with uh, your son Jesus, in which we will uh, show forth the foundation of Christ, and all that's been built on it, and have the opportunity to have a pretty intense discussion, I'm sure, as the flames test everything that's there. Help us to be found with lots still standing. 
even if up until now, perhaps there's a lot of wood, hay, and stubble. Help us to build on from now on for things that will last as we understand what your word says. Let us understand what it looks like to be complete in you, to walk in the spirit, to be controlled by the spirit, to, uh, to, uh, to accomplish your revealed will to do the work of the Lord. Perhaps, and I'm speaking to those perhaps who were sitting here today, who listened to everything I said and just thought, wow, that doesn't seem to be worth it. Can I, can I ask you a question? Are you at home here? Because if, if those are the kinds of responses, perhaps you were at home here. Maybe you're like the man at the end of Matthew 25 who was unmasked as someone who never really knew his master, said false things about his master and then was thrown out. You know, you don't have to stay that way. Christ said to those who followed him, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and humble in spirit, and you will find uh, rest for your souls. My burden is easy. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And beloved, at that point, your priorities will be changed. You realize that this isn't your home. You've been putting your hope on things that don't last. It would be our great joy for you to come to faith today. Pray and receive Christ. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He is who he said he is. He came and did what he said he came to do. And his word and his law and his judgment will be final. Right now you can meet him as your savior. Someday you're going to meet him as your judge. So be right with him today. As Paul said, we beseech you on behalf of Christ. We beg you. As ambassadors of Christ, be reconciled to God. You do that through Christ, confessing your sin to him, repenting, and believing. Thank you for your work here today, Father. Thank you for your time, our time together in fellowship. Thank you for uh, tonight with PTA and the, and the fun that we'll have in communion and all that. Lord, we, we're grateful for just doing the things that you've said to do. Simple church, I pray that uh, your blessing will be on it. Thank you today for all those who are here. Pray for your blessing on them. Encourage them. Thank you for all those serving downstairs right now. And giving themselves away, found that open door, walked through it, and are serving faithfully, even in, in thankless situations and difficult things. Lord, thank you for them. Thank you for our nursery workers and our toddler workers who, who uh, are really the foot washers of the modern New Testament church, but they're not washing feet. We thank you for them. We thank you for the children's church workers and all those who taught Sunday school today and, and all those who gathered offerings and stood at the door and greeted people. and. And all the things that get that happened and came in, in the middle of the week and cleaned and took out trash and mowed grass. Lord, all those, Lord, thank you for all those who are ministering so faithfully. Help us to all be found faithful when you come. Servants who are looking forward to the master's visit. We love you, Jesus. We are grateful for you. We long to see you and pray also this in the name of you, the one who died and rose and is coming again. All God's people said.